we are in this series uh, called Heaven and Hell, and, and we're talking about what the Bible really says about the afterlife. And, and we spent the last, the last two sermons, the last two weeks, um, talking about heaven, and it's the good one, right? The good side. And, um, and we've been, we started by asking, what do you think heaven will be like? And, you know, discussed, oh, I think it'll be this, I think it'll be that, and, and wonderful. And, and we spent two weeks then looking at, this, at what, what the Bible says about heaven, what Jesus says about heaven, what, what John and Peter say about heaven, what Paul, and, and, uh, and, uh, and I hope, I hope if you went, if you exp- like were with us um, following along that you have maybe a new, more, more like broader understanding of, of what to expect and what heaven will be like. Um, this morning, we now switch to the, the, the flip side of that coin, so to speak. And we now, for the, this week and next week, are talking about what the Bible says about hell. Because uh, for what, as much as the Bible talks about heaven, it talks about this other place. So, just like we did with heaven, here's what I want you to do with the neighbor next to you. Uh, if, you know, if you know them, wonderful. If you don't, this will be a great way to meet a new person. Um, I want you to answer this question or discuss this just quickly for the next 20 seconds. What do you think hell is like? If you don't know this person next to you, maybe introduce with your name first. And then, ready? Go. What do you think hell will be like? And a, and a perfectly good answer is, I don't know. I don't know. Or I don't even know if I believe in a hell. Or, or here's what I grew up thinking it would be like. Okay, all right, all good answers, I think. Good, good. All right, okay, here's the next question, and you don't have to discuss this. This is just for you to think through. Um, Okay, so whatever you just shared or thought through what hell is like, uh, here's the follow-up, ready? How do you know? How do you know? What makes you think you know what hell is? is or will be like. I'm gonna guess, just like with heaven, none of us have been there, right? Um, Anyone been to hell and back? Okay, all right. I I would imagine we would say, no, I don't have any firsthand experience of this place. So how do we know? Most most people, this this is how they know. It's what they want it to be like. I think it will be like, okay, the only way we can really know what it's like is if we hear it from someone who's been there, who knows what it's like. Maybe someone who, who understands the afterlife. It, it, for the, of all the things that, uh, that a church or a pastor could speak on, could preach on, of all of the unpopular sermons or topics Hell is easily at towards, towards the top, if not the top of that list. I'm going to guess, just like we said with heaven, that you probably haven't heard many sermons about heaven. You probably haven't heard many sermons about hell. In fact, can you remember the last time you heard uh, someone get on a stage and say, all right, let's talk about what the Bible says about hell. Some of you, you may be Christian for decades, and you, you can legitimately say, I can't remember a single sermon about hell. We would talk about it. We don't want to go there. But, but to, to discuss, to hear what it's like or what Jesus says about it, what the Bible says about it, 
Ooh. And perhaps it's unpopular. Well, it's unpopular for a number of reasons, but, but perhaps because um, our view, like people's perspective of hell is, um, is, somewhat, uh, is somewhat trivialized or they associate hell with it, like this understanding of a, of the devil, like in, you know, in like full red, like gear with a tail and a pitchfork and some horns. And he's like just poking people for eternity. And, and like there's fire and like you, when you think of your understanding of hell, it's probably been informed by culture much more than the Bible has informed it. And that what we've watched on TV or, you know, I, I remember even watching cartoons, almost like a mocking, mockery of this, oh, this, this place, hell. And, and so many people will just write hell off and just sort of dismiss hell because of this weird kind of, kind of funny caricature of it. And they'll say, well, that's just a scare tactic to get people to, 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 fall, under, to fall in line with religious control. That hell is a, is a doctrine created to control people. And so, you know, go to hell or do what I say. If you won't want to go there, just follow, just follow our advice. And, and so people will say, therefore, it, it's, a, it's a made up theology. It can't be real. So it's dismissed. But yet, the Bible has almost as much to say about hell as any other subject. You name a topic and the Bible says maybe nearly as much about hell as that thing. So as much as we want to say, well, this is a doctrine made up later, later in the hundreds of years later, well, Jesus talks about it. Jesus talked quite a bit about it. And, and the same Bible that tells us about the love of God and the beauty of heaven tells us about judgment and hell. We cannot ignore it, even though it makes us feel uncomfortable, even though I don't like thinking or talking about hell, certainly. Um, the, one of the values here that I have, that we have at New Hope, that I personally will hold for the rest of my life, is if the Bible says it, we will say it. If the Bible claims it, we believe it. If the Bible talks about hell, then we talk about hell. If Jesus talked about hell, certainly we will talk about hell. The word hell is used in thousands, thousands of conversations, millions of conversations in all different kinds of ways. Even when you hear the word hell and, and maybe it's used as a swear word or as a, like a, an adjective or a description in, in flippantly or or maybe we use it even in a way to describe a really hard time. We say like, oh man, that was a, I, was, I was in a living hell or I was going through hell. And, and we use the word in, in ways in which we're not, really, we're not really actually like acknowledging the real existence of this place, whatever it is. And so we just sort of almost, almost mock it and write it off as just, just another word to use, to be flippant. But the church... Even in the church, the, the doctrine of hell is, is not unpopular, but it's, it's almost forgotten. Because it's not preached, few people seem to even believe in hell anymore. If you and I were to go on the street and just pull random people, go, to a, you know, go outside of, a, uh, of a, uh, an old mill or outside of a, you know, a, a popular business and, and a, a store and just, hey, so I got a random question. What do you think about hell? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. It just, it just feels like a made-up, it's just a made-up theology, made-up thing that people use to control. I, I bet you that would be the top answer we get. 
Yet, the New Testament talks about it over and over again. In the New Testament, we find reference after reference about hell. And, and this is the thing that might even mess you up a little bit. Most of the references are spoken by Jesus. When we think of hell and we talk about hell, most of our understanding about hell comes from Jesus himself, not from followers who wrote about what he said and, and rewrote history, wrote it back, but, but the words of Jesus and what he says about this place. So we'll do some background about the word hell because again, the word hell carries with it a lot of baggage. Even this morning will be heavy, I promise you. We'll leave here and you'll, you, this heaviness you feel, you will carry with you because of this topic. But hell, it's, the word hell is not maybe what you think it is. So let's start first. According to the Bible and specifically according to Jesus, hell is a real place. It's not a, a description. It's not, it's not an adjective or a way to describe a really difficult situation or, or a hardship we're going through. But, but according to Jesus, it is a real place. There are four words in the Bible translated as hell. So let's walk through them. The first is in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you, you, you read your English New, Old Testament, you won't see the word hell in it. What you will see is a similar concept called shoal. This is the first of the four words that are used to describe or, or, um, or translate as hell. Shoal, it literally means the grave, and it's associated not just with like dying and being buried, but an unseen state, a shadowy underworld, and it's a world of sorrow and pain and destruction are commonly connected to it. So it describes Shoal as a, as a desolate place post-death. The Old Testament understanding of Shoal is, uh, is opposite of paradise. It is not heaven. It is not take, you're taken up to paradise or what's often referred to as Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, it's called. And it's like, well, what is that? Okay, well, it's, it's, it means you get to be with Abraham, Father Abraham in God's kingdom. Shoal is not that. Shoal is different. Shoal is the opposite. And then our second word, and you've probably heard this word before uh, as well maybe, is Hades. Hades is the New Testament version of Shoal. It's the New Testament like uh, uh, equivalent of the Old Testament Hebrew word. So Hades is, uh, is, can often be translated as hell. It's used in, uh, from the Greek, it's used 10 times in the New Testament. And it too refers to or has connected with it judgment and suffering. Hades is not a place you go to and say, oh, this is wonderful. Hades is, is like Shoal, is, is post-death after the grave and it is a, a place of punishment and and suffering. And then we get a third word, and this is one that maybe is unique, uh, that you maybe haven't heard before because it's just translated as hell in your New Testament. The third word is Tartarus. Tartarus is used one time in the scriptures by Peter. That's it. It's a unique word, and it's a unique description and place. It's so you're reading your Bible, you're reading 2 Peter, and you just read hell, but that's not the Greek word that's used. The, read, the, the, Greek, the Greek word is Tartarus, and it's used once, and it refers to a place where disobedient angels and the, the worst of the worst angels are thrown into this spiritual prison place called Tartarus. They're thrown in prison and Jesus visits this place after he uh, resurrects from the cross. Um, this is where people get confused and will say, well, Jesus went to hell and he preached. No, 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 he went to Tartarus in the Greek. It's specific. You gotta know 
what Peter is writing. And it's this specific place, a prison for angels that supposedly, according to, uh, according to Peter, were extreme, like the worst of the worst. So they're locked up, waiting judgment in this place, translated hell, but it's Tartarus. And then there's a fourth word. And this is the main word that's used when you read the New Testament and you see the word hell. You can probably imagine like this is the word behind that, like the Greek word behind that. And that, that word is Gehenna. Gehenna uh, is translated as to hell, but it, it, hell is a, um, hell is not, hell is an illustration This word Gehenna is used 12 times in the New Testament. It's translated as hell, but it's an illustration that Jesus used, and it's this. Gehenna literally means the Hinnom Valley, or the Valley of Hinnom. Geh, Valley, Hinnah of Hinnom. This is a particular valley, a very specific valley outside of Jerusalem. If you look at the the topography of Jerusalem, it, it exists today. So a number of us are going to Israel here on our next trip, and, and we are gonna go visit Gehenna. I'm taking you to hell. And you'll see this place. And here's the deal. Ready? I'll show you pictures next week. Hell's beautiful. It's a park now. Like, I remember the first time going by, all right, this is hell. And there's kids playing soccer. Well, this is not what I envisioned hell would be like. Um, you uh, you want to hear something funny? Uh, sometimes it will snow and hell freezes over. <laughs> it legitimately will. So hell, or Gehenna, the Valley of Henna or Hinnom Valley is this valley outside of Jerusalem and it's not used for this anymore, but, but uh, certainly in Jesus' day and even before Jesus' day, it was used as almost like the, the city dump, the trash heap where you would put all of the garbage, all of the stuff from the city and you would burn it. That's how you, that, how you get rid of it. And, and it was said to always be burning. There was always trash out there and, and poor people who could not afford a tomb or a burial would just be thrown out there. And they would just be burnt, their bodies. In the Old Testament, it was a place of, it was, this is a terrible place, a place of child sacrifice to, uh, to false gods and idols. And, and it was a part of idol worship. And, and, and so this place developed a, a reputation. By the time Jesus comes around, it had developed into a symbol of judgment. This wasn't Jesus making this up. He, you know, he wasn't the first to call this place hell or Gehenna and to talk about it. Um, so, so this, this, this valley of this Hinnom Valley has a history to it. And that's what Jesus says when he refers to this other place of the afterlife. He says, all right, what's the best I can explain? It's like this. It's, it's Gehenna where, where there's always fire burning and, and, and bodies are, and it has a terrible history, a, t- a place of t- a terrible experience that we call hell. Hell is a real place. According to Jesus, this is a real place. In Jesus, we see, he talked plainly about hell. This is the, so I just, I'll just share, I'll just bear my, uh, my soul here a little bit. This, this, of all the theological topics, this is the most uncomfortable for me because we don't like thinking about it. We don't like the implications of what this means. It would be so easy if I, so if I could rewrite this, I would just take out references to hell and just say, we don't need that in there. It's not nice to think, I don't wanna be thinking about that. Let's just, let's just talk about the good stuff. But what we see is Jesus referred to this place a lot. Enough that we say, man, if Jesus is talking about this place, 
we have to, we have to take seriously what he meant. And we have, to, we have to look at this as well. Not because I want it to be true. Not because like I'm the guy up here, you know, hellfire, brimstone, repent or else. Like, I, no, not at all. Instead, I'm saying with, with reverence and, sh- and, and fear and trembling saying, Lord, if this place is real, we need to take this seriously. Jesus, you talk about this. So, all right, this is a, this is a real place that you talked a lot about. Let's go through some of, the, some of the things that Jesus says of how he describes this place, Gehenna. Matthew chapter five, he says this, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell, of Gehenna. All right, they know about this. They know about Gehenna and they know about the fire and he's talking about this fire of Gehenna. Ooh, okay, Matthew chapter eight, Jesus says this in verse 11, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast, this wedding feast that we talked about in the last few weeks with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. One of the things that, that, that happens for those who, uh, who are ushered into heaven is we have a feast. And he says that you're gonna eat in this kingdom, this feast of this kingdom and with the patriarchs, with, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's gonna be wonderful. Verse 12, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This becomes a common metaphor language that Jesus uses for Gehenna, for hell, this weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he says, some will enjoy this, this feast in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and others will be thrown out where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says this, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna, in hell. That, that outside of just like destruction for your body, this punishment, this destruction applies also now to your soul. And only one can do that. So don't be afraid of those on earth. Don't submit to the ways of the world instead Submit to God because he has far more authority than they do. Matthew 13, verse 40, Jesus says this, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man himself, is the title, his favorite title for himself, will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into a, the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the, in the kingdom of their father. That, that there's, there seems to be two places, two experiences in the afterlife. One is this blazing furnace he describes where there's weeping, crying, and gnashing of teeth where you grind your teeth probably because the pain is so, so excruciating. And, and then he says, but then there are others who will shine like the sun in the kingdom with their father. And you get one of two places. We see this in Matthew 18. Jesus gives this extreme illustration and he says this, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better you enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the lake or to the fire of 
Gehenna. Now, let's, I feel like this, this in particular needs some, some, uh, some added um, commentary here. Is Jesus telling us all, if our, if our hand causes us to sin, to cut it off. If our eye causes us to sin, gouge it out. And, and does he mean that literally? I, I was a youth pastor for a number of years, a decade, and, and one of the, um, I had a lot of a lot of students, a lot of youth leaders come through our ministry, and and one of the things that I loved was I loved having um, our um, our youth leaders, our very small group leaders, get up and preach every once in a while. I try to do it at least once a month, and and uh, it was always fun for me, for the kids, for someone else to get on the stage, and it was great. Um, I remember in particular one of these um, one of these uh, Sundays I had uh, his name was Jerry. He's a he's a lifelong. Um, youth leader and, uh, and loved kids, but also was like, all right, I, I want you to get saved and yeah, we're gonna be friendly and nice and we're gonna love you, but we're gonna tell you the truth. And I said, hey, Jerry, you're up, man. What do you wanna, it's your turn to preach. Here's what we're talking about. And he goes, I want this passage. I want, cut your hand off, gouge your eye out. I'm going, are you sure? <laughs> like, you wanna do that? He's like, I'm ready, let's go. So he preps and, and the kids don't know what's coming. I certainly do. And I'm like just praying I keep my job for the next day. And, 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 he, and he says, I've got some illustrations. He pulls out a bag and I'm like, oh my gosh, Jerry. Jerry, he's a volunteer. He can't get fired. So he can do what he wants. So Jerry, he reads this verse, uh, better to cut your hand off than, uh, than be thrown into the eternal fire. And he turns around and he's got this, uh, butcher board, he pulls out this, 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 this butcher knife, this like clay, and he just goes, jump! Ah! And he throws a fake hand into the crowd. Ah! And the kids, of course, freak out, right? And he's like, so then he's got, he's like doing this with a sleeve, you know, he's got a fake, you know, thing. And so he's like, all right. And then he reads again, all right, if your eye causes you to stumble, and at this point, the kids are like, okay. So he does this, he, gets, he pulls out a fork and, he, and he's just like, ah! And he, he gets this tomato he painted like an eyeball and he throws it out, ah! And they're like, gross. It was, it was a quite a memorable experience, right? Right? You can imagine, right? I'm sure for, I, rem, I will remember it forever. Now, is Jesus saying, hey, go do that. Tonight, you should go do that. The point that Jesus is making here, this is hyperbole. This is extreme language in which he's saying, this is so serious that if, 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 it, if it comes down to it, it would be better to have to lose a hand than to go to hell. It'd be better to lose an eye than to keep your eyes and go to hell. If those are the options, give up a body part. This is that serious. Now he's not telling you to go around cutting off your body parts when you sin, but he's saying this, this is that important. Hell is a real place. Jesus talked about it. It is a real place in the afterlife. It isn't a figure of speech or a, a description of a lifestyle that is really difficult or challenging or hard, that this is a real place. And we see this for real people. This is what makes us uncomfortable. This is what makes, this, is, this becomes one of the reasons why people will say, I can never be a Christian because you guys believe in hell. Well, the reason we believe in hell is because we believe in the words of our Savior who says there is a hell. It's not because I want there to be a hell. 
It's because I'm convinced Jesus is who he says he is. He said what he said. He meant what he meant. And he talks about this place. So if Jesus is right, then there is a real place where real people go. And what makes it hard is that these are people you know. People you know might one day find themselves in this place. This is why this topic is so, is why it's avoided in churches because of this moment. We don't like feeling this. I don't like thinking about this. Yet Jesus talks about this. There will be a final judgment. We're told that no one can escape. The Bible talks about this a lot. We'll look at it this week. We'll look at it again next week. There is a final judgment that no one can escape. You or I, there's no, there's no like get out of jail free card when you show up and you say, no, 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 I'll just skip the judgment here. Please, thank you very much. No. Again, according to Jesus, we all stand before the throne. We all stand before the judge and we're given a verdict. One of two options. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 25. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire. And he gives us this insight. Prepared for the devil and his angels. That this place, this Gehenna, this, af- this place we call hell in the afterlife, was originally created that God made for the fallen angels who left and rebelled. And he says, all right, you're going to this place. Now, you can't be in heaven. You have to go here. And then when humanity fell and sinned and you and I continue to sin and Our destiny then is the same place. And he says, depart from me, you who are cursed into this fire that burns eternal, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then he describes what they did or didn't do to get there in his conclusion, Jesus' conclusion. They will go away to what he calls eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. When I read my Bible, there's no third option. That everyone goes before this throne and goes to eternal punishment or eternal life. Those are your options. Jesus then is gonna tell a story. He tells a story illustrating this. And, and this story, um, uh, as you can imagine, uh, people divide over. Christians, theologians divide over how to apply and what Jesus is saying. There are essentially two options. We can call this story a parable in which it's not, it's not entirely accurate or meant to be literal, but rather to just teach a point. Much like the prodigal son. Jesus isn't talking about an actual prodigal son who left his actual father. He's making up a story to make a point. So many will say this is just a story that Jesus is making up to make a point. And then there are others who lean towards the, well, this doesn't, this doesn't fit the same style and language that Jesus has when he tells a parable. There's, there's too many details and he's listing specific names. This seems to be an actual, an actual description of an experience. Maybe a prototypical experience of what this place is like. And the, for those who read it this way would say this probably is a more literal description of, of what this experience would or could be like. And Jesus uses this to teach a point, but he's also sharing things that are actually true. Not a story, but truth. So we see in Luke chapter 16, 
Jesus tells this story of two guys, two men, who go to two places and an interaction that they have. In Luke 16, verse 19, we're given the setting. Here's what it says. Jesus says this, there was a rich man who was dressed in in purple and fine linen. Purple was the color of royalty. It was the most expensive color to get. Purple dye was extremely, extremely expensive. This man was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate, outside of his home, was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and looking to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So Jesus sets the tone, he, sets the set, he gives us this setting and he says, all right, there's two guys, there's a rich man who's, who's left unnamed, probably for a reason. And then he says, there's a poor man, his name is Lazarus. And commentators will discuss, well, why is Jesus giving him a name? No other parables get names. This might be, it very well might be, this was a well-known poor person, a poor beggar that, that everyone listening knew. That Jesus is using Lazarus and maybe this man was a, a, an actual beggar who, who actually lived this way and maybe passed away and, and now he's saying, hey, let me tell you a story about a rich man and this guy Lazarus. I'm like, oh, we know Lazarus, yeah. You remember him? Yes. It very well may be that Jesus is telling us a story about an actual event. So this man, Lazarus, is covered with sores and and it says he's longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Probably the garbage, right? Whatever whatever they get rid of at the table, they pack up, they get rid of, and and he's probably going through the garbage to just eat whatever he can, right? Which is not a bad idea because rich garbage is better than poor garbage. (laughs) So he lives his life eating the garbage of this rich man and his table. And then we're gonna give insight and make some observations about this. First, those in hell will understand their judgment. Here's what we're gonna see in this story, that, that, that this rich man, he knows what he's experiencing and he almost just accepts it as, as this is what I deserve. Here's what we see. Verse 22, it says, the time came for the beggar when the beggar died and the angels carried him off to Abraham's side. This is, again, an, another reference to paradise. Or Abraham, it's called often Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. They're with Abraham. They're with him in paradise, what Jesus calls paradise. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, in the grave, in where, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side. Abraham and Abraham and Lazarus at Abraham's side. So this man, this rich man looks up. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the, just the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this place. He asked not, look what he asked for. He doesn't ask what you and I would imagine someone would ask for, that, Lord, take me out of this place. And, and the reason is, is because, ready? He knows he deserves it. He just asked for a little relief. He, he just asked for a little water. Why doesn't he ask to be saved from this place? Because he knows he deserves it and he can't be saved from this place. That's not an option. He understands. 
his judgment. And he asks just simply for, well, because I am in agony in this fire. He's in Hades and he's experiencing this punishment and he says, I'm in agony in this fire. Whatever that means, however that looks, however, whatever Jesus is trying to say, it's not a good experience and he wants just a little relief, please. Those in hell will understand their judgment and, and will understand why they're there. Those in hell will remember their lives. Not only will they understand and, and, and know why they're there and that this is just punishment for, the, for my kind of the life I lived, but they will remember how they lived. They'll remember their lives. Verse 25, it says this, but Abraham replied, son, remember, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. And now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Don't, listen, remember, don't you remember your lifestyle? Yes, I remember my lifestyle. You had everything, all the, all the luxuries. You're out, you had a great life, but you didn't follow me. And he had a terrible life and he was one of mine and he did. And so he's here now to, be, to experience comfort and you're in agony because of your life, of how you lived. Don't you remember? And then verse 26, and besides, besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Okay, so Jesus, he makes a point and says, remember, Abraham's gonna have this conversation and he says, remember what your life was like. And even if, even if you wanted to switch, you can't. A great chasm has been set in place. Here's what this tells us, ready? The great rewards and joys of heaven are permanent. And the punishment and judgment of Gehenna is permanent. That we can't switch over from here to there or back and forth. He says, where you go is where you go. And that's it. Even if, even if Lazarus wanted to come and bring you water, he can't, he's not allowed to nor can you come here. God's judgment is permanent. Those in hell will understand their judgment. They'll know why they're there. Those in hell will remember their lives. They'll remember how they lived. And, 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 and in doing so, those in hell will, the third thing we're gonna see, will regret their decisions. They will regret the things they did or didn't do in their life. Here's what we see in verse 27. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Here's the, what this guy says, all right. I'm here where I'm, where I'm supposed to be. I can't switch over. Okay, great. Can you, just, can you just send Lazarus back to my family because I don't want my family to come here. He remembers he has family and they're still alive. Will you warn them? I don't want them to join me here. And he says, no, no, no. They have Moses and the prophets. They don't need someone else. And he's, no, 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 I know, I know. But that's not enough. And you know how he knows that's not enough? It wasn't enough for him. 
that he still didn't believe. He had Moses and the prophets and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that wasn't enough for me. That wasn't convincing enough. So if you just send someone back, if, if someone were to rise from the dead, that will do it. I know that will do it. That will prove to them. And Abraham responds with this. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. In this, in this great moment of foreshadow about like, what is gonna happen and what, like, what could happen, what could be used to describe or to argue someone into heaven, he says, if someone were to rise from the dead, that would be the evidence they need. It's almost as though Jesus is setting up, hey, even the thing you ask for, I'm gonna do. Listen, Lazarus can't come bring you water for relief, but you want someone to rise from the dead? Don't worry, it's coming. And you know what's gonna happen? People still won't believe. I'll rise from the dead and they still won't believe. It won't be enough. Moses and the prophets, the scriptures, we have the scriptures, we have a resurrected Jesus and, and it's still not enough to convince someone. This guy, this rich man, certainly regretted his decisions. He, he certainly wished he had made different decisions and wants different decisions made by his family. That they, that they can have enough evidence and proof of, of this place. And God is real. If only, he thinks, if only I'd realized God was real, if only I had decided to repent, if only someone could tell my family, if only I took this all seriously instead of just writing it off as just kind of a, a, a funny fairy tale that religion created to control people, if only I realized this is a real place. Here's what we see. Heaven is a real place for real people. And here's the point, ready? And it's terrible. As great and wonderful as heaven is, hell is just as terrible. One of the, the reasons why this is, this is uncomfortable or difficult a subject to bring up is because of this moment where we think, all right, if this is a real place for real people and it's, and it's that terrible, I don't want to think about it. And here's what it should cause for us. Number one, if you aren't a follower, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet, if you haven't, if you haven't decided to become a follower and to say, I, I need the forgiveness, I need, I want all of that. There's no better day than today to say, all right, all right, I'm in. And then for many of us, others of us who have done that, maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for years, maybe decades, and you're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful God is gonna include me into this, this feast in the kingdom and I'll be with him. I'm so grateful. I can't wait for that moment, but I'm in. For you then, here's what this acts as. This morning acts as a reminder of the consequences. Ready for this? Okay, you're not gonna like this, but you need to hear this. Of you not sharing the gospel. Of you holding the gospel to yourself. I imagine this, this haunts me. This haunts me. I imagine there will be people in hell who say, Brandon, why didn't you just tell me about this? And my response will be, I was scared. It was uncomfortable. 
I didn't, I didn't think you'd listen. Maybe they wouldn't have. Or maybe they would. For us, when we think about and talk about and read about hell, oof, it should cause in us a motivation and a desire to say, if this place is real, if Jesus is who he says he is and he said what he said and he meant what he went and this place is real, I want as many people that, as I know to not go there. And the way I do that is, is not by telling them that they're gonna be fine, that just live a good life, just, just be kind to people around you and you'll be fine, you'll be good. The way I do that is by living out the gospel and by literally with my mouth sharing the gospel, the good news of salvation. Because here's the deal, ready? This is true for all of us. You and I, we deserve this place. Because of our sin, we deserve this place. You don't earn your way into heaven. You don't earn your way into God's grace. You don't earn your way into the rewards that he has to offer. What you earn, Paul says, is, is death. The wages of sin is death. It's separation. It's this. And because of God's good grace, he saves us. Anytime you hear the, word, the language of saved, you should be thinking. When someone says, I'm praying that they get saved. I hope that they get saved. Uh, we experience salvation. You should be thinking, saved from what? That's important. You know what they're saved from? You know what we're saved from? From this. From this. The consequences and the result of sin. So you and I, we deserve this. We deserve the punishment and the, and, 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 and the, the destruction and the, the penalty of our sin. We, we deserve this. And one of the things that comes up, I'm sure maybe you're thinking about or people have asked you is, how could God do this though? Now, we don't have enough time to answer this fully. We'll spend, again, time next week and then at first Wednesday also continuing to talk about this because there's more to say and we're already done. Um, I've gone over, it'll never happen again. But <laughs> one of the questions people have is how? How could God do this? And the answer is God is all loving and all, and all merciful and 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 all gracious, yet he is all righteous and just. That he is a perfect judge who makes perfect judgments and, and cannot, here's the thing, this is the kicker, cannot un allow any kind of unrighteousness or uncleanliness or sin into his presence. He can't allow himself to be defiled by any one of us bringing our sin with us. So he says, you can't come here. You instead have to pay for the the sin you've committed. This is the scary news. This is the bad news. And here's the thing. Jesus dies on the cross to forgive us of our sin. And that's great, but that's not enough. Jesus forgiving you is not enough to save you and bring you into heaven. Here's what the cross does. The cross allows God to put your punishment onto Jesus. It allows God to put the wrath that he has for your sin onto him where he says, all right, Jesus paid your penalty. You don't have to anymore. Great. But that's still not good enough to get you into heaven. Here's what he does. And this is so incredible. And, and if you don't have this understanding, this is the thing you need to be maybe studying and reading about. He does something else. And this is amazing. Not only does he forgive us, he does what in theology is called, he gives us imputed righteousness, which means the righteousness that Jesus has, 
He then says, I get to put that on you. So now I can allow you into my presence because when I see you, I see the perfection of my son. Your sin has been covered and dealt with and forgiven. And what's left now is now you are, listen to this, you are adopted into my family like a son or a daughter. So now you get my kingdom. God does all of this. You don't earn any of this. God says, I will make you a son, a daughter, a child of God. Because of Jesus, you can be forgiven. And because of his righteousness, I get a, I'm putting it on you. Welcome, welcome to this kingdom I prepared. And, it, and here's the thing, ready? God provides an escape from hell. And that escape is Jesus. And that's the only escape. It isn't, well, just be sincere in whatever faith you have. You, I don't know if you know this. Sincerity is not enough because you can be sincerely wrong. Just ask your spouse. They, they know you are sincerely wrong and every time you have an argument, I know you believe this, but you're wrong. You and I can be sincerely, it's not enough. What Jesus says is I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. This isn't because some guy on a stage is saying this or making it up or saying you have to do this. I, I'm just saying, here's what, here's what Jesus tells us. You decide what you want to do. I've made my decision. You get to make yours. And, 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 and all of us, all of us will face judgment, not based on what someone else did, not based on the conversation or the decision that a parent or grandparent made. Our judgment is intensely personal. It's what you do. It's what you decide. The decision's yours. God provides an escape from hell, and it's Jesus. So let me do this. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll worship together. So would you stand up? And we'll, I'm going to pray for, for us um, in, in two areas. So will you do this? Would you, would you bow your heads with me and, as we get ready to sing, but also um, come before God's presence? So would you bow with me? So I imagine that there's a number of us that, in this room maybe haven't put our faith in Jesus you haven't decided to become a follower you haven't you haven't asked for forgiveness you haven't confessed your sin and said God I want to repent and I want to follow you and I want to become what the Bible calls a Christian and if that's you today is the perfect day and, and what's cool is you could do that just, in the, just, just by speaking it and deciding it in your heart and speaking it to God Bible says anyone who confesses with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. So, that's the process. If that's you, I want to pray with you and pray for you. Heads are down, so it's it's a private moment, but I want to know who is deciding this. So will you just, if that's you, just slip your hand up and I'll see it and I want to all see who I'm praying with and who I'm praying who I'm praying for. So if that's you and you're like, all right, I want in. I, 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 I want to be with Jesus in this afterlife. You can just, right where you are, just pray something like this. God, I admit I am a sinner and I'm in need of a savior. I admit I am far from perfect. And I believe Jesus died on the cross to forgive me and to save me. And now I commit my life to you to become like you, to be changed by you. 
Will you make me a child of yours for eternity? Now, others of us, maybe you've done that before and you, I'm in, I'm a, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. I've decided that, I've just, great. But, but I realize that my motivation to share the good news has waned as of late. And what I need, what I need is God to, to encourage me and challenge me and motivate me to, to be reminded of the fate of everyone around us is one of two places So I need to do what I can to share the gospel with as many people as possible. If that's you and you're saying, God, renew this motivation and desire in me and give me opportunities to share, I want to pray for you. Just slip your hand up and and I want to be, if you're saying, Lord, yeah, do that for me. I want to do that. Yes. All right. A lot of us. Okay. So, Lord, for all of us who are saying, increase this inner, this inside, this desire to, to, to represent you with those around us. I pray that you would, even this week, provide opportunities in our life, people in our path, opportunities for us to share the good news of Jesus with those who need it in a world that desperately needs you. Jesus, we thank you. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your grace. We thank you for the table of communion, the reminder of your forgiveness and the righteousness that we get because of Jesus. We worship you now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.